Seeing Red the Pod, episode 61, where we always discuss the latest Nebraska issues. I'm Stephanie, and here with me today, my ladies, Melody and April. How's it going? Hello. Hi. Hello. So we have like the best guest ever coming mm-hmm. on. I'm like very excited. Someone who's been a regular contributor at Seeing Red, but I think a lot of people haven't heard him speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm excited for that. But I just want to, can we just take a little space and talk about you know, the three of us live in Lincoln, mm-hmm. and how are have you seen new legislative legislature maps? Like part of Lincoln now goes to the literal Missouri River, and part of Lincoln is touching Kansas. Lincoln now looks like how Utah looks with Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. What in the actual hell? The legislative well, districts. I'll tell you what, and it just seems real strange that then like a day and a half later, it's like Justin Wayne wants to get an appointment for the governor that would then get a point his replacement. Yeah. Just, just for one session, though, because then it would go into a special election next November. Um, I mean, frankly, it sounds like a seat the Democrats can pick up because Justin was never a reliable vote. So, you know, and and he's covered and, you know, now I'm like, I actually, because when we talked on the pod last week, he was doing a good job. Mm. Things were going well, it looked like from the outside in. And now a week later, I'm like, what did you do to Lincoln? It's called a bait and switch, man. That's not even illegal in capitalism, but it's fine in the Nebraska legislature. Anyway, I take out, I take back my good comment about uh, <laughs> Senator Wayne. I'm just taking it back uh, because this is not, this is not okay. What has happened? Um, well, I want to, I want to shout out my Senator, Matt Hansen, because yeah. he was posting and saying, this is his quote. The process we just went through shouldn't be praised, and I am mm-hmm. disappointed that my own party wants to publicly declare otherwise. Yes, plenty of people I know and like worked hard, but at the end of the day, that doesn't matter if the maps are bad. Um, I will say bravo to my state senator, because Matt Hansen is now my state senator. I still have um, the same state senator, Senator Bostar. I don't know what, what role he played in redistricting, but one thing I was just like a little happy about is that my seat um, is bluer. So, you know, maybe I have a real chance to run. Woo. You never know. That. It's you more know. winnable for me personally. <laughs> <laughs> so watch mm. out people. You may, who knows? Who knows I what do, I'll do? I already ran once. I do have a shout out to, I went to this little bitty bookstore in Dundee called the Dundee Book Company this weekend, you guys. Mm-hmm. And it's super cute. It's a fantastically curated collection. You can become a member. Um, you should go check it out if you live in Omaha. Go visit. It's my little thing. What, what's so, what do you mean you can become a member? What is, what are you well, talking about? It's kind of like 
Barnes and Noble membership, but I think it's like mm. the Dundee book company membership oh. where you get like 20% off your books and you can get like emails that tell you stuff that's going on. Love that. Anyway, Love books. Uh, it was just really great books. Um, and I was really happy and I wanted to buy everything. Love it. Well, let's bring on, speaking of books, let's bring on Kari, Ari Cohen, mm-hmm. who just wrote a new book. Ooh. Let's talk about that. Let's do it. All right. Let's do it. Ari Cohen is a professor of political science, Schlesinger Professor of Social Justice, and director of the Norman and Bernice Harris Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Nebraska. Cohen has published two books, In Defense of Human Rights and Untangling Heroism, both with Routledge. He's co-editor of the book series Contemporary Holocaust Studies from the University of Nebraska Press. The most recent volume, Anti-Semitism on the Rise, was published this week. That's exciting. Cohen teaches courses on the history of Western political thought, human rights, restorative justice, and politics in the Middle East. Welcome, Ari. So nice to have you. Hey, thank you. Great to be here. We are thrilled you're here. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing I have to say that your biography was missing is that you are one of the top Nebraska Twitter influencers in political discourse in the state. Yeah, we're going to need to add that to your bio. Yeah, we really should. It wasn't long enough. Uh, Yeah, well, that's a whole thing. Uh, I, yeah, thank you. Thanks for that. (laughs) Anytime. Okay, well, I think before we talk about, um, you know, all the things that you are known for in your professional life, can you walk us through how did you get to where you are in life? Where did you grow up? Um, is there a love story in your life that you want to share? You know, just a little bit of background about yourself. Yeah. Wow. Um, thanks for inviting me. Thanks for asking um, such a fun starting question. I'm just a, you know, just a small town boy, uh, born and raised in South Detroit. Um, <laughs> and uh, I ended up in Nebraska through no fault of my own. Um, I, uh, I originally, um, had driven through the state one time and, uh, then I saw a job advertisement and, um, decided to toss my hat in the ring, got incredibly lucky, uh, was invited out for a beautiful interview in the middle of December. Um, uh, and so mm-hmm. obviously, you know, all this, everything seemed great. I couldn't imagine a better place than Lincoln, Nebraska in December. And, um, I, I was lucky enough to get the job and, and, uh, was invited out here, but I, um, no, I, I grew up uh, in and around Detroit, Michigan and, um, went to the university of Michigan state and, uh, did my graduate work at Duke. And, uh, my first job was out in Virginia. Uh, at a school called James Madison University, which is in the Shenandoah Valley. Absolutely beautiful place. Um, I taught there for three years. Uh, I helped start a new, uh, a new department there called Justice Studies, um, which was fun and interesting. Uh, it was like a mix of law and philosophy and um, some criminal justice and some other stuff. And, um, uh, but coming back to the Midwest, was something that really interested me. And so when the Nebraska job opened up, I thought I would apply. And uh, it was a great decision. I've been in Nebraska for, I think, 14 years now, which is kind of amazing. And uh, I, I like it here. Uh, what else did you ask me? That's, uh... Oh, I asked if there was anything that anchors you here aside from a career at the university. 
Ah, well, um, so I, uh, I'm very happily married. Uh, I've been married to my wife, Sarah, for, um, for 12 years. And uh, I dragged her out to Nebraska uh, with me. Um, and uh, she's, so she's from Virginia. We met there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then uh, I, I dragged her out here. She went to law school in Lincoln. Uh, and then, um, yeah, we uh, have, a, have a fun little family. And um, we, we lived in Lincoln for, for four years and then moved up to Omaha, where we've been ever since. We don't have any family here. That's our one, that's the one drawback. Uh, but there's an amazing community. We've met wonderful people. Uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of folks that, um, if I'm talking about what anchors me here, uh, good friends, uh, a really great community. Uh, and that's, um, you know, people who are active in uh, Nebraska politics are a fun little community. And, uh, and then, of course, um, uh, we're very involved and very closely connected to the Jewish community here in, uh, in Nebraska, and, uh, most, of, most of whom live in, uh, in Omaha. Uh, and it's a it's a really remarkable tight knit small but um but but very loving and um and, and wonderful people well i think you will um be in good graces with your amazing wife and you know sometimes ari writes on the seeing red blog for you know those who don't know and you know sometimes he'll interact um with posts on social media and you know uh, so he's just a regular contributor and um, one thing we talk a lot about on the blog are specific examples of anti-Semitism, neo-Nazi movements, uh, white supremacy in general. This has like just been an ongoing theme at Seeing Red uh, really since our inception. And this is your like, professional academic pursuit. Uh, you know, in, in a variety of uh, different arenas. And so I want to talk about that today. Uh, I wanted to talk about, one, how do we know, you know, you can speak about this more broadly, but if you could also narrow in in Nebraska, how do we know that anti-Semitism is a real thing that we still have to be talking about? Yeah. So I should say I am one of the um, one of the least contributing contributors to seeing red Nebraska. It's something I'm uh, both proud of and deeply ashamed of. Um, I heard I really- that you were in charge of the whole thing, <laughs> and that you told us what to do and gave us our assignments every day. That's what I heard. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's exhausting. Uh, that's that's the exhausting part of my life. Um, but I think I've written three posts across uh, how many years uh, has this been going on? I, look, they're beloved posts. I'm very proud of them. But uh, we all know the real power behind that blog, it, it ain't me. I'm glad to be, uh, I'm glad to be associated with, uh, with the, the work that, that you all are doing, though. I think it's really, really important. In terms of anti-Semitism, uh, I mean, I'll start in Nebraska, and then we can kind of, um, you know, move the map out. One of the only things I knew about Nebraska before I moved here was that it was like one of the hotspots in the in the world um, for um, for Nazi literature and uh, specifically Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't know why I know this. I guess like because I'm Jewish or professional curiosity or something. But um, for a while um, in the 1980s, especially. Basically, every piece of Nazi 
propaganda literature that was published was published in Lincoln, Nebraska. Yeah, there was um, a guy. It was, yeah, Gary Lauk uh, yeah. is his name. Um, and there was a great piece done on him a few years ago, maybe in The Guardian, maybe in, I don't remember what it was in, but they called the title of it was The Farm Belt Fuhrer. Um, and, uh, and people should read it. It's, it's terrific. He moved out of Lincoln and now he lives somewhere in the neighboring um, environs. I don't know if it's Crete or um, Beatrice or something along those lines, but uh, and he, he, I, I, Fairberry. could be, could yeah, be. That sounds right. and he goes by Gerhardt now because it sounds more German than Gary, but he used to be one of the kind of principal publishers in the world of Nazi literature. And that was the thing that I knew about Nebraska. Uh, there was another um, kind of unusual story, I guess, about a guy who maybe he was in the Klan. Maybe he was like a, an imperial, whatever they call them, you know, some higher up. Uh, and he ended up befriending a local rabbi in Lincoln. Yes, uh, I read Michael, a book Michael that the Weiser. rabbi wrote. Yeah, um, this was all before my time, but those are the things I knew about Nebraska. So it seemed like obviously the place for me, you know, it was, a, <laughs> it was so weird. It ended up that I bought the house, when I moved to Lincoln, I bought the house across the street from where Michael Weiser and his wife had lived. And oh where God. like they, they had, they had like living, I think in their basement or their attic, this ailing like imperial grand dragon, like as he was, you know, as he was dying of, of whatever. I mean, it was the it's weirdest, crazy. it was just the weirdest set of circumstances. But, um, uh, you know, um, I would say, like, on the one hand, um, in my time in Lincoln, none of that manifested, right? Like, there was, there was no overt anti-Semitism. There was nobody, like, putting neo-Nazi literature in my mailbox or uh, posting stickers around town or, or whatever. The, the first several years that I lived in Nebraska, you, you know, it would have been like anywhere else that I lived that, you know, from I moved there in 2007. And, you know, for, for many years, like neo-Nazism, white supremacy in a very overt way, like I just didn't see it. I grew up in Detroit in a big Jewish community. And again, I didn't like I, I didn't see a lot of anti-Semitism growing up. I mean, most of my friends in elementary and middle school were Jewish. And so, like, it, it just wasn't a, a huge issue. The neighborhood neighborhood kids were not Jewish, but they weren't, and their parents weren't anti-Semites, you know? Um, so it was like, and, uh, you know, I mean, the anti-Semitism that I was aware of um, came from family stories, right? Um, I mean, my grandparents on my father's side are both Holocaust survivors. And so we grew up with a very clear awareness of, of, the, of the power uh, of, of virulent anti-Semitism and the ends and the extent to which it can go. A great many members of my family were exterminated at Auschwitz. So it wasn't like it was inconceivable, but I also didn't imagine that we would be in the place where we are now, right? So the book that um, has just come out is called Anti-Semitism on the Rise. And it, it looks at the 1930s and then it looks at today. And I never thought that there would be a cause to have a book like that because um, the idea of um, like ascendant anti-Semitism, white nationalism, neo-Nazism, just uh, like it, it didn't seem like something uh, that, that would be part of my life. And yet, if I go for, I mean, I went for a walk with my kids around our neighborhood last year, and there were um, uh, neo-Nazi stickers that someone had put on a lamppost in our neighborhood. I mean, that's the most, like it was the most bizarre thing. Thing, uh, but there it is. 
And, um, you know, I, I mean, again, if we're going to pinch out, you know, the, the map, so outside of Nebraska, I mean, we're living now in a country that very recently witnessed the, the, single, um, the single largest attack on, on Jewish people in this country when, when that, you know, that guy walked into the Tree of Life synagogue in Pittsburgh and killed 11 people who were praying. The idea that something like that happens in America in the 21st century is, uh, I mean, kind of mind-boggling, right? And Definitely that's, um, mind-boggling. <laughs> but, but the thing is, it's a weird thing to say, too, right? Because we also live in a society mm-hmm. where people walk into churches and, and shoot lots of people, and people mm-hmm. walk into, right? And, and those are targeted, right? It's not just like a random, we also right. live in a place where people walk into movie theaters and schools and shoot a lot of people, right? Because we live in a society where people shoot a lot of people. But, right, we, I mean... The the attack on the Tree of Life synagogue or the Chabad house in in um, Poway in California, like um, those aren't happening in a vacuum, right? This is this is not that long after Dylan Roof, um, you know, walks into that um, walks into that church uh, in uh, South Carolina. I'm pretty sure it was. And so, like, I mean, there is a history, of course, of targeting minority populations. It's just like. It, for whatever reason, the the Jewish minority population hadn't been on the um, on the receiving end in a while, right? And so I think a lot of a lot of people in the Jewish community got um, I don't know if the word is complacent, right? But we you know we started to think of ourselves as um, as not part of uh, the minority community and not part of a targeted community. And now I think it's much harder for us to to think of ourselves that way, right? We are now absolutely targeted again and uh, in, in a way that, um, that people are willing to be very open about. Uh, whereas perhaps, um, you know, 10 years ago in Lincoln, uh, people were still um, filled with hate, but were quieter about it. Yeah, I mean, and it's hard to ignore. So yes, you know, of course the Jewish community has been looped into the tragedies of mass shootings that are happening in either, you know, liberal Christian denominations, black denominations, you know, um, that kind of thing. But then also we have a lot of the language that we're seeing in, I mean, it used to be more far right, but I feel like it's moving itself towards people who might consider themselves closer to center right. You know, we're seeing things about if you're vaccinated, you're mixed blood or, we're being persecuted like Jews in the Holocaust because we wear masks. So other people don't have to breathe our dirty, nasty anti-vax air. So, you know, what do you, what's, what are you seeing in trends around that kind of thing? Yeah. So it's definitely, I mean, I think you're right. There is a mainstreaming of, uh, of a lot of this um, anti-Semitic language that, um, that again, like, some of this stuff would have been very clearly beyond the pale. Um, you would have identified yourself, uh, you know, if you talked this way 10 years ago, you were, you were posting on Stormfront, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's who you were. Um, and now you're a member of Congress, right? right. It's the same language. Um, now, you're, um, now you're Tucker Carlson and you have an audience of, of millions and millions of people every single night. Um, and that's just to single out two from last week, um, mm-hmm. right? We could, we could do this. 
um, going back uh, over the past year, and, and it really is quite mainstream. And that's to say nothing of the examples you're talking about, right? The school board meetings where people are wearing, where, are wearing yellow stars and, and comparing all of this to the Nazis and the Holocaust. It's, and, and the thing that's so interesting about it is that they don't think it's offensive. They don't see the offense. Um, you know, the minor inconvenience of being asked to wear a mask um, is not the Holocaust. You know, uh, it's not the Nuremberg laws um, when, a, when a private company decides that they would do better if, for their business if, if all of their, um, all, of all the people who are front facing customers were vaccinated, right? That's, that's, mm-hmm. not, um, that's, not, that's not race laws uh, in, in 1930s Germany. So like that, those are the easy, those are the low hanging fruit. And those are the things that you see on the news all the time, right? The school board uh, people yelling and screaming or the um, people going to the city council meetings and, and demanding that, that we stop being um, fascists by asking people to care about the health of others. You know, those in a sense, like it's offensive, but you know, it's, it's also uh, ridiculous. Uh, that's quite different from, the, um, the examples of Tucker Carlson and Matt Gates and whomever else, you know, where they're openly, they're openly talking about replacement theory, which is, uh, which is an old racist and anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that goes back, you know, to the, um, uh, to the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s in France. And um, I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing because uh, my co-author, Gerald uh, Steinecker and I, um, he teaches history at UNL. And um, we were writing the introduction to this book and we're, we're writing, I mean, you, there's two pages in here about replacement theory, right? And where it comes from. And then to see it last week on television in the United States um, is, is shocking. It's absolutely shocking. And to have it repeated then by a member of Congress, not a serious person, right? And we should mm-hmm. be really clear, like he's a congressman, but I mean, uh, you know, he's, uh, he, he's very loud, but he's, he's Matt Gates. But nonetheless, this is, um, this is the kind of stuff that would only be on Nazi message boards in the past. Um, and so the mainstreaming of it is really, really disturbing because it is actually the exact same language uh, that that ended up with those people murdered in the synagogue, right? If you remember, the guy who who uh, who murdered all of those people, it was about it was about migrant caravans, right? At that time, and he blamed he blamed George Soros, um, who he thought was funding the migrant caravans who were coming to this country to take over, and right. So it was the Jews who were bringing the people from Central America to come and take over the country from good, honest white people. Um, and that is literally great replacement theory. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, uh, so it's the same language and it just keeps coming uh, back and it, it always ends in violence. And that's the thing, like, you know, I always tell people that if you scratch the surface of any conspiracy theory, you get anti-Semitism and, um, and all of those saying. things. <laughs> I mean, it seems apt. It's, it's always there. Um, and and the end result of it is always violence, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and what, you fre- what you frequently find is that it's, it's racism and anti-Semitism put together, right? So mm-hmm. in the case of replacement theory, the Jews are the masterminds, right? And they're using the, you know, whether it's, the, whether it's people from North Africa to take over France, right? Whether it's people from Central America to take over you know, the United States, right? It's a plot by the Jews to use members of 
uh, of uh, you know wh- uh, people of color, whether it's from uh, whether it's from Africa, whether it's from Central America, to take to take away what is rightfully the the good white people's uh, possession. Um, and it's usually also mixed in, right? You can, I mean, there's also some good, um, you know, sexism and misogyny here uh, as well, right? right. Because it's it frequently, it frequently that, you know. yeah, well, you have to get a whole package. You can't just have one. Um, it's, <laughs> but it's also right that, that, that um, we're, we're doing it by taking away um, the women. Right. So we're, you know, there's always like um, misogyny, um, misogyny, yeah. uh, misogyny uh, because the women are a possession, right? And they should be the possession of good white people. Um, but instead, right, um, they're, they're going to be taken by um, uh, by the people of color and they're going to produce these, you know, uh, mixed race um, uh, future that it will be unrecognizable as the great America or the great France used to be. Mm-hmm. And this is the you know, this is the same Jews will not replace us from Charlottesville. Yep. It's just it's just years later. Right. Which that wasn't very long ago. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, it feels like a it lifetime wasn't ago, years right? It was, ago. 20, I mean, maybe it was 2017. Ago? It was 2017, I think. I mean, people born that year are still potty training. Like, <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it seemed like, I mean, that was the impetus for the book, right? So the first, the first page of the introduction talks about how our experience of of watching that on television that night, right? And the mm-hmm. um, going to sleep and waking up in a different country, effectively, right? And the, my memory of that night is that the people, the reporters on the ground and the reporters online, right? Journalists were trying to figure out what was happening um, because it didn't make sense straightforwardly, right? These were people who were ostensibly gathered there um, to protest the removal of a of a, a statue of Robert E. Lee, right? These were great civil war historians. They loved great generals of our past. Uh, and um, I, people can't see me, um, they can't see my face because so the sarcasm is um, yes. for all of you. Um, <laughs> but in any case, my family is from Florida. My grandfather went to Robert E. Lee High School mm-hmm. in Florida. And he is you know, an older man, he is gay and lives in New York City. And he loves Broadway. And, you know, he definitely does not think of himself as a racist in any way. But they changed the name of his high school. And he was like, oh, why wouldn't it just, you know, it was like a part of his own history that sure. was untangled from racism. But also it is racist to have a high school called Robert E. Lee. You have to change it. He was um, not great. Which he recognized, but it was, it was a weird, um, you know, I think it just is a weird situation where, you know, the name of your high school, which you had nothing to do with, and you have fond memories of high school, then is also, you know, a symbol of racism. Yeah, but then all these Civil War buffs are marching down the street chanting, Jews will not replace us. Yeah. And that was the most baffling thing to people, because, I mean, because at that point, we hadn't mainstreamed replacement theory. Right. It was something that these these Nazis knew about from their message boards. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't on Fox News. It wasn't something that the people were talking about in the halls of Congress. At that time, I think Matt Gates hadn't yet brought the Holocaust denier as his personal guest to the State of the Union address. I think that mm-hmm. hadn't happened yet. Right. <laughs> so so you know, first people thought, oh, they're saying you will not replace us, right? Because they're the South and they don't want to take down the statue. 
right? That's but what it sounded they, like at first. Yeah. But then they listened to it and they're like, wait, no, they're saying Jews. Mm-hmm. What is that? How does that work? Right. So, I mean, it, it was just this, this incredible, um, uh, re- and this incredible, incredible moment when in, in some sense, right. We talk about the mask coming off all the time. Right. But here it really was like, there were all these um, uh, young men, all young men um, dressed in um, polos and khakis and, um, and, and chanting about um, great replacement theory. Like I, I was, it was, at, it was really remarkable. And in a way, like that's kind of where we, that's where we find ourselves now um, where it is, it's not, uh, it's somehow not a huge black mark against you. Uh, if you publicly express your, um, your anti-Semitic opinion, uh, people just say, well, I mean, as long as you, especially if you can, um, if you can code it even a little bit, right. If you can mm-hmm. say globalists, for example, mm-hmm. um, uh, or, or rootless cosmopolitans, right. Those are the people who are destroying our country, right. If you say Jews, then Twitter ends up making you take down your, your tweet. Right. Mm-hmm. But if, if you just say globalists, then everyone knows you mean Jews, but your tweet can stay up. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's like, uh, it's really, um, it's really bizarre. I mean, it was also in the last four years that we had the whole controversy online with the echoes, right. Where people started um, putting three, um, uh, three parens around um, things to mean Jew. Like, oh, right. That, right. Like that wasn't very long ago. That was a whole thing. That was I all over the forgot internet. about that actually. Yeah. And then there was, everyone was doing in parentheses in solidarity and it just became yeah. a thing. Right, that, that was the fun time. I don't know if you're, I don't know if uh, you know the, the the people who've been following so me on the fun. internet. Everything's uh, so fun on this but, topic. Everything's but, fine. It's all fine. Yeah, look, fine. that was the time, time. That, that was the time that somebody um, referred to me on one of those white supremacist message boards as the as as his professor, right, and put the echoes around professor. Mm-hmm. Which Good how time. does it get more personal than that? Yeah. So you know, I mean. <laughs> we're in this very weird moment where um, we also have to, I think, right. I think it's important to also make sure that like, we're not just um, constantly saying everything is anti-Semitism, right. There's a, mm-hmm. there's a very fine line to walk here where, I mean, every example that we've talked about so far is cut and dry. It's very clear. And it's it, over and over again, it's white nationalists, right. It's the, it's the extreme right. And as you say, Melody, shading toward the center, right. At this point, right. um, becoming, becoming mm-hmm. much more mainstream, but you, you know, you want to be very, I think you want to be really clear and really careful. At least I want to be really clear and really careful that like, there are lots of things that aren't anti-Semitism that people would like to say are anti-Semitism so that we don't have to talk about those things. And, um, and I think that that's also uh, really, really crucial, right? So um, I, I, this is the last time I'm going to plug this book, but I have to plug the book one more time because there's a that's terrific why you're chapter. Here. <laughs> there you go. There's a terrific chapter by, um, by a friend of mine who's a, a scholar in Israel. Um, and he has a chapter in this book on the boycott, divest, uh, sanction movement. And it's, it's not the chapter anybody expects, um, which is why I like it, because what he does with the chapter is to show uh, not whether BDS is right or BDS is wrong or BDS is anti-Semitic or it's not anti-Semitic. He doesn't get into that debate at all, which is what everybody would expect. Instead, he talks about how the Israeli government under Benjamin Netanyahu used the boycott, divest, sanction movement in order to um, change the way people talk about anti-Semitism. 
And I think that it's such a valuable mm. contribution because it's one of the things that we're fighting about all the time now online, right? Can you talk about Israel uh, and not be anti-Semitic? Can you say that Israel has done something you don't like and not have it be about the Jews? Right. Right? All of these sorts of things I think are really crucial. Um, and for me, right, as someone who's Jewish and who has been critical of the Israeli government, it's very easy. In the same way that you can be American and criticize the American government and not automatically hate America or all the other Americans, mm-hmm. you can also, I think, be a thoughtful critic of Israel um, without um, opening yourself up to charges of anti-Semitism. Some people, of course, hate Israel because they hate Jews. Very, I mean, it's very straightforward. Some yeah. people love Israel and also hate Jews. Right? Those things can also happen. But it's, but it's very possible to say Israel has problems. Israel does things that are uh, right sometimes. Israel does things that are wrong sometimes. And that can be perfectly fine. I think there's, it's not an automatic charge of anti-Semitism. Sometimes people say to me, um, you know, uh, they're trying to criticize some policy of the Israeli government. And they say, the Jews, that's a problem, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because the Israeli government is not the Jews. I, I mean... Straightforwardly, they just there's a lot of Jews who are not in Israel. There's a lot of Jews who are not uh, fans of the Israeli government, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, depending on what the policy is. And there are people in the Israeli government who aren't Jewish. In fact, uh, right, there are members of Knesset uh, who aren't Jewish. Similarly, you know, you also find, um, you know, that that um, if you're if you want to protest Israel's human rights record and you do it in front of a synagogue uh, in New York, you might have a problem, right? <laughs> Like, that's not the place to protest the Israeli government because that, those things are not, they don't have anything to do with each other. Right. And so, like, sometimes people tell on themselves, right? And, and you can really see what they're doing. And, it's almost um, like you're saying context matters. Uh, amazing. Historical actions, <laughs> comments, context matters. Nuance matters. Wait it's a minute. It's perhaps saying... A political is bigger than a sound bite, and that a political scientist and a history professor together want us to think about context. You're what? <laughs> I know it's terrible. It's terrible. It doesn't go well with my Twitter persona. No, I mean it perhaps liking, laughing, loving content on social media, whatever meat emoji you choose, it does not really tell you much of anything about a person's character. You need more uh, context. I laugh at a lot of things online. I do think maybe that's what we're saying here. Context matters. I've been known sometimes to give something a thumbs up on Facebook. um, And uh, it doesn't doesn't necessarily imply that I think uh, that that thing is is right and everyone should do it. Um, Just to give you an example, um, I don't like political violence. Uh, I famously don't like it. If there's one thing I'm famous for, it's that even if I give a thumbs up to a picture, that doesn't mean that I support political violence. Right. I've said it many times. I've said it sometimes on a recording. And uh, I think that like this is like really this crucial. One. That like, for example, this one too. Uh, you have to be able to really think these things through. It's so easy not to do that though. It's super easy to just get really angry or to yell at people or to fly off the handle, um, especially because um, a lot of the stuff like justify like makes people angry. I, I get it. If you think that someone is being racist or sexist or homophobic or anti-Semitic, like, okay, I get it. You want to get really mad. 
but like it is it is really important to to take a deep breath and figure out what's going on if you think that somebody is doing something that is an abuse of human rights i get it like you want to call that out and you're not wrong to call that out you're you're right to do that it's just a question of like how how will you do it what will you accomplish um and what do you want you know what do you want the end result to be so well, um, we pivot you know. this line of thinking and i wanted to ask you because you know another big foundational piece of your professional identity is about heroism so if you're really mad or you have big feelings or you just have some big ideas on how to make the world a better place um how to make you know there just be less anti-semitism less racism less sexism less misogyny less all the things what paths do heroes take how does one become a hero what are some things i don't know like what are some kind of like generalities around that yeah i mean i know you've written um, whole books on it but I just need a sound bite. <laughs> Got it. I've also done I've also done a ten minute like TED talk, so I can give you uh, part of that. Um, the don't it wasn't real TED. It was fake. It was fake it's TED. Right. Uh, but is. it was but it still it wasn't even that. It was oh. not someone named TED. It was um, a Joe talk. <laughs> I just went to somebody's house and I stood outside and I talked for ten minutes. Um, the, they weren't home. Um, was your wife? You just made your wife listen to you lecture about it. believe me she would tell you stories um the the thing is there are a lot of things you can do um to set yourself up for heroic behavior um but the first thing that i always tell people is that um I, i i i hate for people to have to be heroes because heroism involves serious risk or serious sacrifice it's like it's really good and it's really nice to help people And we all should do more helping of people, but that's altruism, not heroism, right? Mm -hmm. Starting a nonprofit is incredible and more people should do it because they help people. We should do a helping nonprofit and that's altruistic behavior, right? And it it is, it does cost something too, right? You have to give your time and you, you have to maybe not make the money you would have made in a different profession and and all those sorts of things. And that's a sacrifice without a doubt, but heroism is risky. Heroism can be dangerous. And I, and I always tell people, I hope you don't end up in a situation where someone needs a hero, uh, because that usually means that um, everything has gone wrong, right? I started studying um, heroic behavior because I was interested in the phenomenon of Holocaust rescuers, right? So non-Jews in particular, who risked their lives to save Jewish people, often people they didn't know. And I was really interested in why some people did that, especially because most people didn't. Right, the phenomenon of Holocaust rescue. We've we've made um, we've made a mountain out of it, right? Like the number of books and the number of movies, and the, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, like that's what people think about in some sense, right? When they think about um, the Holocaust, because for for so long the most successful thing was Schindler's List, um, and Schindler's List is, is this incredible story of rescue. But almost nobody rescued Jews. Yeah, well, right? the phenomenon was incredibly people, rare. I would rescue people. Most people, yes. think, of course I would, because I'm a good person. Right. Nobody says to themselves, you know, I watched this movie and there was one person who did the heroic thing and there were 700 bystanders and I'm one of the bystanders, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody ever imagines themselves when you, when you put your head down at night or when you look at yourself in the mirror in the morning, when you're getting your brush and your teeth and think just, oh, today's going to be a great day. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to be a bystander. 
everyone is the hero of their own story. The problem is most people like succumb to the bystander effect. It's very real. And so what we try to do, um, I work with a nonprofit called the Heroic Imagination Project. What we try to do is we go around the country and we talk to especially young people um, about things they can do to set themselves up for heroic behavior, right? In case the need arises, you want to be the kind of person who won't be the bystander, but who will rush in and help. But we hope that doesn't happen. And, and if, it, if not, you'll just have done all this practice anyway, and the practice is good, right? So one of the things I always tell people to do in terms of like practicing, well, the reason that people succumb to the bystander effect is because they're out of practice, not because they're bad people, right? It's because we're not trained for it. I always ask people like um, how, many, how many people in a room when I'm lecturing on this, how many of you, um, you know, have lifeguard training, right? Because if you have lifeguard training, you're much more likely to, um, to rescue the drowning child in the swimming pool or in the, mm-hmm. or in the pond that you happen to walk past. Um, yeah, and um, not just, if you, look, if you have lifeguard training, uh, the, the likelihood goes way up. It also goes up if you think that you are a strong swimmer, just mm-hmm. if you think of yourself as a strong swimmer. So make sure you know how to swim. The, the same thing with CPR training, right? Uh, if, if you have CPR training, you're much more likely to be someone who, who reacts when the need arises. If you're someone who doesn't have CPR training, you're much more likely to be someone who freezes if the need arises when someone needs CPR. Get trained. Learn CPR. These are the kinds of things we're like, most people are out of practice and we can practice. Another thing that I think is really low cost and really easy, and I always tell people to do this, is just make a habit of going through your day doing small good things for other people. You get in the habit of doing those things, um, and it does two things for you. The first is um, you, you're just doing a bunch of good things that help other people, but you're doing them, and here's the other thing, because you're recognizing a need that other people have. You're looking out for other people. You're seeing places where you can help. And I think that this is one of the absolutely crucial things. We don't have nearly enough of it in our society. Um, you know, it can be something really, really small, like holding the elevator. It can be something so small as offering to take someone's shopping cart back when you're walking through the parking lot on your way into the grocery store. These are such small things, but they end up not really doing something for somebody else. They fill a need. They recognize they recognize some, somebody else, the humanity uh, that is not just in you, but in somebody else, and they respond to it. And that, over time, expands your empathy, which is absolutely crucial. Uh, we need, we need um, broader circles of empathy. We need more caring communities. And this is how you start to build them over time. I mean, I have to say, I'm just going to fully admit this, but as you're saying these things, like practice small acts of kindness to build your empathy out. I'm thinking, you know, I feel, it feels like very, like I'm being seen right now because with all of the lack of empathy I have personally felt for me and my family from the community, the state, the country, you know, we're all going to have to really, and I know I'm not alone in feeling like my empathy, which used to be really wide and deep has really shriveled into a pond. Yes. And I, I just the know that's where I am right now. I'm in a you're, pond you're of empathy so right. and I used to have, you know, it was the Ogallala. It was the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> it was so big. Yeah. Over the past 20 months, our sense of 
community has been shredded, just absolutely shredded. There's no, um, there's no way around it. Um, when, you, when you look at um, the way in which people um, are no longer, are very clearly not looking out for one another, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the, the low level of inconvenience um, that people protest um, those sorts of things are, I mean, look, the reason that people share those videos online of the horrible anti-maskers at the grocery store is not because everybody is a horrible anti-masker, but because they're like, when someone sees that, they say, you know what, this really touches how I feel, right? I'm feeling this way about the community around me right now, that there are, that there are people out there who don't care about the, about my safety about the, the safety of my children or the safety yeah. of my, um, my aging grandparent or my immunocompromised friend or, or whatever. And, and that's why those things are powerful. And then people say, well, just don't share it because it's a small minority who behave that way. But we're feeling the effect of, of this Absolutely. pandemic and, and, and how it has kind of separated us uh, from what we felt like was a caring community. I want to say a couple things. Yes, I absolutely. Every time I go to the grocery store, there's a few people and I don't, I'm not going to focus on those people, but you can't help but feel like, dang it, another person who just won't care about me. And it just, it just wears on you and it just wears on you. And it's like you said, such a small inconvenience. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to say only because I'm a librarian, so I got to plug it, but um, books build empathy stories build empathy and um we definitely need more of that but i'm sure you know you're an academic you know this <laughs> but exactly. i want to say it out Look, loud no april it's 100 percent right because one of the biggest things you can do to expand your sense of empathy is to is to have heroes right if you want mm-hmm. to prime yourself for heroic action you have to have heroes yourself and you have to know about them you have to mm-hmm. have read their biographies you have yeah. to learn who they are and what made them tick. Why did they act that way when everybody around them acted a different way? Right. And mm-hmm. so I always tell people, like, it's very easy to, to say, oh, um, you know, I really like um, Martin Luther King Jr. because um, I'm supposed to or Gandhi mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you have to you have to find out why those people did things that the rest of the world wasn't willing to do. And the way that you do that is to read about them. It's also yeah. important, and, and, and what you just said is, is, is really touching on this, to put yourself in the position of other people. And there's nothing better mm-hmm. for that than a novel, right? Yeah. The, the novel exists so that you can enter somebody else's head, right? Yeah. And, and, and you walk around as somebody else, and you get mm-hmm. to experience the world from a totally different perspective. And that builds empathy. It changes the way you think about people who, who have radically different life experiences from yours. It's, it's absolutely crucial. So yes, you need, um, you need, you need good libraries um, with, with great librarians who are incredibly well-funded and you need to not put books in offsite uh, warehouses um, accessible only by robot. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you have to be able to like walk through the stacks and explore mm-hmm. and find a book you didn't know that you were going to read, but it just happened to be yes. next to the book that you were looking at. Uh, that's, that's how, um, that's how people's lives are changed. Yeah. Ari, do you have a bookstore that you love? Is there a bookstore that I love? Gosh, I mean, there are a bunch of really good bookstores, um, in Nebraska actually, which is nice. There's a, there's the bookworm, uh, out here, Mm -hmm. um, which is is pretty awesome. Um, and there's the one that I walked past. 
every uh, Tuesday and Thursday when I walk to campus. And now I'm not going to remember the name in Lincoln. Somebody help me. It's Novel like, idea. Thank you. Great. <laughs> um, and uh, so, um, I mean, there are a lot of these really, really um, uh, lovely bookstores. Um, and uh, the nice thing uh, that I'm really looking forward to um, once uh, all my once my kids are vaccinated and I can go live my life in a kind of normal fashion um, mm-hmm. is I mean I, I don't I don't go in places anymore right I miss mm-hmm. going places and one of those places I, I miss going I, I go to the library still um, mm-hmm. but I'm like I, I reserve all the books that I want online and then I rush in when I when the hold notices come in and I pick them up and I leave and like I'm missing. The experience of like yeah, going and being in that. the library. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I can't but I have do that. To. But I have to because I live. I live in. I live in Omaha, and the last yeah, time I went to no the public mask, library, maybe. I was. Sta- mm-hmm. I was staying next to a, a, an elderly gentleman who was literally wiping his nose with his hand, and then putting mm-hmm. his hand on the on the counter, oh, the my checkout God. counter, oh, and my God. I. I right, we can't live this way, is what I'm no. saying. Right? So I live. <laughs> So I miss I miss going places. I miss I miss browsing in a bookstore. I have it's good news like, for you. You can get a Lincoln City Library card. And you can use if you ever come I, to campus. <laughs> I think I still have my old. I think I still have my old Lincoln City Library card. Well, um, they'll make you I, update your address every year. That's probably my dirty secret about libraries that I have to share is when I go into the library. I often do not want to rummage the stacks because I find them overwhelming. And so I just look what librarians have put on top of shelves and on top of the stacks. And I'm like, oh, well, that looks kind of good. Oh, let me just, and I just take those almost always. Cause I always find two or three that I haven't read. And I'm like, oh, we'll try it. We'll see if a librarian I, put it here, that's good enough. That's my I'm whole theory. I have right. to put out the best right. books. It's totally right. Those like curated um, shelves are really mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. But I also, and like, I'm, I worry that we're going to get into a phase of libraries where people talk about having just the curated books, right? And they're going to oh. have revolving curated books because I, I really do find, and I know this is like the, the academic in me, there is something really delightful about wandering down a long row of books with your head like this. Uh, for those listening, I turned my head to the side. Um, and you you had no idea that you were going to find this book. And then you found it and you and you took it home and it was exactly what you wanted. But it, you would never have looked it up on the computer. Mm-hmm. You didn't know anything about it before you walked in. I just, I, I you know, I, the last book I did this for, uh, it's sitting right here because I haven't returned it because the library that I took it from doesn't exist anymore. It's the saddest story. Um, there's an amazing um, library at the Jewish Community Center here in Omaha, and they've, um, they've gotten rid of it because they remodeled the building and they gave all the books to UNO. So the books are all still there, but I have this book that I took out like 21 months ago. And, um, and I, I used to just like to go into that library and wander through like Jewish philosophy because mm-hmm. Why not? And um, that experience, not having that anymore, is um, it's, it's really it's tough. I'm looking forward to having that back again. 
This is probably more depth than our listeners care for, but here's my library take on it. I think libraries have to be a kind of place for all those types of readers. Yeah, you need some curation. Sometimes you just need, you know what? These are brand, I really focus on like, these are brand new. Just put them face out. All those face out and people will grab them because it'll catch you. And the stuff that looks like old junk needs to go. It's all junk. Nobody's picking it up anymore. It's just taking up space. And then... There are then there are people who still like to browse, right? And so that's why you see some that go to like more of a bookstore model. Um, even as a librarian, I really love going to. All right, that's yeah, a big chain store, but Barnes and Noble, I really they curate tables really well, and. I am a person like many of you. I know what I like, but I don't have a lot of time. I'm a librarian, but I got to have a good book every time. I don't have time for no like mediocre books. And so when I see a table at Barnes and Noble where I've read like five of the books already, I'm like, oh, I'm going to like the other books on this table. So I think there's space for all of that, but I don't want robots. That's for sure. And a librarian or, you know, like a bookstore or like a bookstore person to talk to about books is is invaluable. That's that's the most important. I mean, with my kids, that's that's been the thing that um, really stands out. Like the the library, the the librarian is worth his or her weight in gold when it comes to kids, because I can walk up to the table where the librarian is sitting and I can say, here is my child. And he reads way beyond his grade level, but he shouldn't have things that are completely inappropriate, mm-hmm. right? But he could read them and understand mm-hmm. them, but we mm-hmm. don't want those. And, and, and then within two minutes, that person can say, here are 25 books that your child <laughs> will love. <laughs> and then my child is happy for three days um, and devours those books, right? That's, mm-hmm. it's the best. That's, that's so key. So I have a question that... I wanted to ask you, and I wasn't sure if I was going to get a segue, but I feel like I've gotten one. So I'm going to, I'm going to seg into it, but <laughs> so there is, so we were talking about libraries and we're talking about, you know, you brought up how there was a religious library, you know, at your place of worship. And many people have those religious libraries in their places of worship. And then we have secular libraries, which everyone enjoys um, and everyone can have access to. And you know, we kind of agree that all these kind of libraries should coexist. And I wanted to ask about when it comes to politics and it comes to governance, there is often a debate around where does, where should secular thought dominate? Where do religious peoples fit into the conversation? What is appropriate, what's inappropriate? I also think there's a lot of empathy missing all the way around that conversation, no matter which way you're coming at it from. Um, And I just wanted to get, you know, as somebody who is, you know, secularly really thoughtful, but also involved, like you've done, you know, we haven't talked about this. We prayed off time tonight, but you've done a lot of work in the death penalty, which is a movement which has, I think pretty well married different actors of religious and secular and economic, conservative, liberal around a cause and found some success. It couldn't compete with billionaire dollars, but it did find policy success. And so I just wanted to get your thinking around how can people work together 
when it can be so emotional and, and build empathy and find a path forward. Yeah. Um, so that could be its own hour. Um, so I, I mean, I have to bring up the death penalty because you're right. That's exactly the way that I envision this working because it's the way that it worked for me. Um, the death penalty work that I have done, it was, it wasn't my first like campaign as a, as an activist, but it was the first thing where I feel like I, I threw myself into it for my life. Um, and the experiences I had working with activists from all over the country and even all over the world on this, um, what I think of as an absolutely crucial issue um, that cuts across so many different um, uh, really important um, fissures in our society, right? There's, there's class and there's race and there's, I mean, you know, there's all sorts of issues that, that come up. Um, but the people who were working on the death penalty when I got involved 20 some years ago now, um, were this uh, amazing mix of people. Um, and uh, it was people of faith and people of no faith. And, um, and they all worked together. And it wasn't seamless. Uh, without, without doubt, there were moments where um, you had to navigate some really challenging, really thorny problems. Um, but they figured out how to do it. And I, I remember, I mean, the, the, the experience that stands out to me um, we spent, um, there's, it's still going on. Uh, it's called the fast and vigil against the death penalty. And it goes on in, um, uh, in summer, the four days, um, between the two Supreme court decisions, the Furman decision and the Greg decision seventies. Um, uh, they, uh, there's a group of people who, uh, they fast for four days and they keep a vigil outside the Supreme court, um, mm -hmm. in DC. And I used to go to that. Um, and, uh, and we used to we used to we used to stay at the at the Dorothy Day Catholic Worker, um, and we would we would sleep there, um, and, uh, and then we would you know we'd be at the court all day long, handing out literature and complaining about not eating, and it was this incredible mix of people from all over, from every walk of life. There were nuns. And there were um, uh, evangelicals, and there were um, uh, and there were Jews, and there were um, and there were atheists, and um, and everybody got along because we were there to focus on a specific issue, and we all agreed that there was this specific problem, and we all agreed on what the problem was, right? There was no debate about the the death penalty be uh, right or wrong. Everybody had the same line came to the issue that we were addressing. We all agreed. And all the things we didn't agree about, we didn't talk about. <laughs> not for those four days, not while we were there, right? So you built this coalition of people who, um, who were able to come together and leave aside the things that they didn't want to talk about, right? We, we, we didn't want to have a debate about, um, about abortion, because we were there to talk about the death penalty. And we knew that if we had a debate about abortion, we were going to have a problem because we, we didn't all agree about that. But the fact that we didn't all agree about that didn't mean that we couldn't work together on this. And I think that was a really kind of, um, that wasn't something that occurred to me before, before I saw it in action. Um, you know, it seemed like if you had allies, you had to agree on everything. And, um, and you had to pick apart your disagreements and figure out who was wrong. Uh, and, and in this case, the work was just more important than that. And we could find time some other time if we wanted to argue with each other about other things. 
But on this thing, we were going to work together until we solved it. And I thought that was really, um, that was really a, 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 a nice way to do things. It was really refreshing and it was really different. Um, and I, I don't think I see it a lot in other, um, in, in other kind of um, uh, issue specific um, uh, work that, that I've done. I'm sure it exists out there. I'm sure people are doing that. Um, but that example always stands out to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have talked about how people can stand up and make big changes, but we always end every pod, you know, asking if you have wisdom or advice for people who want to make a difference in the world, who want to be heroes or just make the world less crappy. Um, you know, maybe they don't want to rise to the level of hero. We just want to make the world less crappy, make their own neighborhood less crappy, whatever it is. Um, you have, what would you say to that? Um, I would say find the pe- find your people. Um, there are already people around you who are out there doing it and they're doing what you want to do and they're focused on the things that you care about and you should find those people. You should reach out to them and you should say, how can I help you? Um, it seems like you're doing things that I care about. Um, how, how can I participate? What can I do to add to what you're doing? Um, I think that one of the one of the most important things um, is to recognize uh, that there's so much incredible work being done, and uh, we don't need like new uh, we don't need new organizations necessarily. We don't need people um, to parachute in um, and say, "I've been thinking about this this week, and I'm going to solve it for you." Right? What we need uh, are people who care, who say, "I want to find the people who also care." and see what they're doing and see how I can add my voice to theirs. Um, I think that that is, um, that's really valuable. Well, last but not least, do you have a book you've been reading that you might want to tell us about anything could be related or not? And if you do, did it come from a library? I'm going to add that. (laughs) (laughs) Because we've talked about libraries so much. (laughs) I just finished. So I started, um, I'd been listening to podcasts. Um, mm-hmm. on my commute for the last 10 years. And mm-hmm. I got overwhelmed with podcasts because mm-hmm. there are too many that I was interested in. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a completer. I can't start something and not finish. Same. And it's debilitating because yes. there were like 30 podcasts that all had 700 episodes and I didn't know what to do. So when the pandemic started and I didn't commute anymore, I just stopped. I deleted them all. And um, I gave up. I'm not listening to podcasts anymore, except for the Seeing Red podcast. Um, but, um, but then I started listening to audiobooks. And so I've now listened to two audiobooks, both uh, from the library. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I just finished on my drive back today, I finished um, uh, The Water Dancer, which is uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' novel from mm-hmm. a few years ago. Oh, so good. Um, uh, it was it was really good, and the 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 person who read it was really good, um, and so I recommend that. And then I've been um, reading this graphic novel. I think I'm on like book three of it. It's called Why the Last Man, um, and it's a um, uh, uh, Brian K. Vaughn who's done some really really good graphic novels. The saga um, books are are really really good, um, and this one is as well. And I think they just turned it into a TV show um, on one of the streaming services. Yes. Also. Um, so yeah, um, uh, I'm, I do my best to not read, um, the things that I have to read all day. Uh, so mm-hmm. I'm not reading, like, this is like the fun stuff that I, I read, um, when I'm not reading for work. 
There is no judgment. Reading is all good. Like I said, it builds empathy and all that good stuff. <laughs> right on. And I think it's good to remind people that. Well, thank you for coming on, Ari. We are so deeply appreciative. We are hoping you do a reaction when the social media post comes out. Um, <laughs> and we just, you know, we just think you're great. And if you write another book, we'll let you back on. <laughs> it's the only way i really i really appreciate it i'm always happy um to write another book so that i can come back and spend time with all of you thanks for having me uh this was a delight i um yeah i i am going to go back to you know um being behind the scenes and controlling everything um mm, which is excellent. funny when you think about it because that is completely an anti-semitic trope mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> absolutely absolutely that is why and- people say it not us it's, and it's Amazing. also misogyny. Do you think any of the women of Seeing Red would let any man give us any of us the what for? I mean, uh, that's not a thing that happens in Seeing Red. No, I, I cannot. I cannot imagine it. But it is amazing that there are um, many, uh, many people out there uh, who are absolutely certain of this. Um, and uh, you know, um, uh, I guess that's no. that's my big claim to fame. Not serious um, people. No, no. <laughs> no. Well, have a good night and thank you for Thanks coming on. Thank you again. This was really fun. It's nice to see you all. You've been listening to Seeing Red Nebraska Politics from the Left. Seeing Red is a group blog edited by citizen volunteers and entirely devoted to Nebraska politics. You can support us on Patreon with a five, ten, or twenty dollar a month donation. Be sure to check us out at seeingrednebraska.com and on Facebook and Instagram. You can also follow us on Twitter at seeingredne or contact us via email at seeingredne at protonmail.com.